Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to our number two of the Vinnie Eastwood Show with Will on AmericanFreedomRadio.com and incidentally, the VinnieEastwoodShow.com. Proudly brought to you in collaboration with GorillaMedia.co.nz, New Zealand's unconventional news. And uh, we do like to try and, uh, you know, fill up the uh, schedule with amazing guests, some of which you may ne- have never heard from, uh, but I would wager all of which you'd want to hear from again. On that note, we have a very special guest his name is stefan molyneux is it bro uh, from uh, molyneux that's that's pretty good yeah molyneux okay and he's coming out from canada he's the host of free domain radio and uh, just in the short segment here i'd love to um get him to introduce himself to y'all stefan welcome to the program Thanks, Vinny. It's uh, very nice to be. I feel like we're drilling through the center of the earth from one colony to another and launching sound packets at each other. So I think that's that's pretty cool. Uh, I've run uh, Free Domain Radio. It's the largest and most popular philosophy show on the web at freedomainradio.com. We've had about, well, I guess, 26, 27 million downloads by now. Uh, I've been doing it full time for a couple of years and part time before that. I used to be a software executive. Before that, I was an uh, a graduate student uh, studying history, and uh, before that, I did some acting at the National Theatre School of Canada, and uh, and uh, before that, we fade into the mists of inconsequential high school experiences, so I won't bore everyone with those. Uh, and uh, I am uh, a rationalist, I guess you could say. I work from first principles and evidence, and uh, I'm fascinated by economics, particularly Austrian uh, economics. Uh, I like to apply philosophical principles to uh, society, to to politics, to relationships, to marriages, to parent-child interactions. Uh, I'm just fascinated to the degree to which universality, you know, the, the wonderful universalization that philosophy is capable of, the degree to which it can be extended, expanded, and injected into just about every form of human interaction, both external and also internal with yourself. So that's my particular bent, and uh, I, uh, I absolutely love it. Yeah, well, and this is the uh, thing we just had uh, Casper Leach on from uh, Time for Hemp, and, and it, it seems to me that um, it's intelligent, professional people, uh, for some reason, get motivated to stop working in that particular environment and start working on a personal project for the benefit of uh, the rest of the population. And uh, there's usually some description of motivating factor behind that. For myself, it was uh, being arrested uh, for dealing cannabis, and that really kind of woke me up. What happened to you? What happened to me? It sounds like, what injury did you sustain that turned you into a philosopher? Well, that may be actually a, a pretty good question. Well, I mean, I think I came through a pretty pretty traditional route. I got turned on to objectivism when I was in my mid-teens and studied that and uh, branched out from there, became a big fan of of Aristotle and Nietzsche and uh, Schopenhauer and other of the sort of great philosophers. And um, like most people, you know, you immerse yourself in a study for about 20 years off and on. And uh, then you begin to want to bring some of yourself to it, you know, like you can play other people's piano music for so long and after a while you want to start singing uh, or creating uh, tunes yourself. And that was my particular goal, so that's what I've been up to. All right, awesome. Stefan Molyneux, host of Free Domain Radio, ladies and gentlemen, here on American Freedom Radio on the VinnieEastwoodShow.com. We'll be right back.
welcome back to the Vinnie Eastwood show. Oh, wait, hold on a second. And welcome back to the Vinnie Eastwood show on AmericanFreedomRadio.com. And incidentally, the, the Vinnie Eastwood show.com. It's the Godfather episode with the man himself, Stefan Molyneux, coming as live from Canada. Stefan, welcome back. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. I feel right. I should kiss a ring or something, but uh, I guess we'll just have to keep moving on. You only get one favor. <laughs> Speaking of favors, uh, would you do me a favor and talk about the Middle East situation? Because I'm very interested to hear what you have to say. And, and just to uh, preface it, in fact, it doesn't even need prefacing. If you are listening to this show, you already know that there's copious quantities of crap happening in the Middle East right now. Stefan, go for it, my friend. Uh, well... I think the first thing to recognize about the Middle East is that uh, these uh, these activists have Internet access. And given that they have Internet access, they're looking at something that we in the West aren't really looking at nearly as much as we should, which is the greatest, most massive, most stupendous elevation of the poor into the middle class that has ever before been seen in history. Over the past 20, 25 years in India and in China, over 300 million people have escaped poverty because the Chinese economy has been growing at like 9.5% per year. I mean, it's, it's staggering because they've actually allowed entrepreneurs to be free and they have a smaller uh, share. The government has a smaller share of the Chinese economy than the British government does, which is supposed to be all kinds of capitalist, right? And so um, uh, Egypt in particular, you have 40% of the population living on less than $2 a day. This is after 6,000 years of statism. This is the best, uh, this is the best they've been able to achieve. And so I think a, a factor of three things. One is this continual poverty in the Middle East, which is just grueling and absolutely brutal. Uh, the second is, of course, they are, the, the, the middle class people are able to see the amount of opportunity that is available in other formerly third world countries like, uh, like China and like, uh, like India and, and want the same thing. And they recognize, they understand that it's economic freedom, as it always is, which has vaulted all of these people out of this uh, hand-to-mouth, poverty-eat-your-toenails existence. And, uh, and, and I think third, of course, you've had a massive increase in the price of foodstuffs over the past uh, couple of months, uh, 20%, 30%, depending on how you count it, and sometimes even more. And when you're living on $2 a day and your, your price of your food goes up 30%, you're just 30% hungrier. And I think that's fascinating. I think what's also uh, has been mentioned a little bit, but not very much in the mainstream media, is the intelligence community around the world. I mean, good Lord. I mean, they, they were caught off guard by the Iranian revolution in 78. India's 98 nuclear tests. failing. They failed to foresee the 9-11 attacks in the U.S. Didn't even see the end of the Cold War. They... Um, uh, they were examining the most examined country in the world, which was Iraq in the 90s, and they thought there were weapons of mass destruction that they weren't. They missed the fall of the Berlin Wall. They missed the Soviet invasion of Czechoslovakia in 1968. They uh, missed the uh, Tet Offensive in Vietnam. They had no idea the 1973 Yom Kippur War was going on. They miscalculated all of the Bay of Pig stuff. I mean, it's it, you could go on and on, and Lord knows I've been known to, but uh, I think it's really important for people to recognize that uh, this is like really sad and pitiful state radar. Uh, these people are paid uh, hundreds of billions of dollars a year uh, to to uh, to suss out all of the potential trouble spots around the world. They missed the uprising uprisings in Tunisia, in Libya, in Egypt. They have no idea what's going on. They lack human intelligence. They seem to lack basic intelligence. They seem to lack internet access. I mean, the chat rooms in the Arab world were alive. With revolutionary talk. There were Twitter feeds going up all over the place, Facebook pages exploding with organization, and these people are like, 
I don't know. Uh, I'll check some guy's blog maybe and see if anything's going on. I don't know what they do all day, but uh, I just thought not only is there a lot of very interesting factors going on to generate, uh, I think, some potential for positive changes in the Middle East, but it is also just another massive internal security and intelligence failure on the part of all of the U.S. alphabet soup of agencies that are supposedly designed to protect everyone. Well, you know, the um, the revolutionary... Um aspect of what's going on in the Middle East is not a um, is not a uh, unexpected element I mean the uh, the US government has known for some time that uh, their sponsored the dictators that they sponsor are really ticking off the people of the Middle East and eventually they would be overthrown um, and so they, they've seen this kind of uh, well in advance apparently and uh, now it seems to be uh, just sort of positioning themselves so that there's a crisis in the Middle East, to force up food prices so that the instability will then affect the rest of the world and use that as a justification for people to beg for martial law. And and that's my opinion, at least. So you think that uh, there may be sort of martial law and a further crackdown uh, in the Middle East? Well, if there's a... Oh, I'm talking more along the um, the lines of the Western world. I mean, martial law um, really basically, in my opinion, can't be implemented in the Middle East because there's just too many people that are on the streets. You know, you can't uh, you can't marshal an entire population if the entire population is motivated against you. It just, it just can't happen unless, of course, you have uh, more guns than the entire population does and are prepared to use them on unarmed populations, as is happening in Libya, where incidentally U.S. troops have now landed in order to train the rebels. So, huh. you know, are we, we're going to be looking at yet yet another U.S. war. Yes, yes. Well, you really can't get enough of those on your Cheerios every morning, can you? No, no, I th- absolutely not. You know, I mean, I've, I've got my, uh, my, US, my bowl of U.S. wars as well like that, you know, and a few, te- <laughs> few teaspoons of that on my cornflakes every morning just keeps me damn skippy. <laughs> Tastes like cordite. Um, yeah, but yeah, but look, like I mean, you, you're from New Zealand, like right? Depleted uranium that I can sprinkle, <laughs> on, you know. <laughs> but look, you're from New Zealand, right? So, I mean, New Zealand in the '90s went through a significant contraction in the size and scope of state power, right? I mean, uh, ditched a whole bunch of subsidies, got rid of, I think, almost all the agricultural subsidies. There were, I think, drops in the corporate tax rates and shrinking in state uh, in state expenditures. Uh, so that there are certain times. I mean, the state as a whole generally expands, but there is it's sort of a jagged line. And so there are times when the state is going to contract. My particular view is that uh, in, in the Western world, there is going to be a, uh, a contraction uh, in the state uh, over the next uh, sort of five to ten uh, years. I think that's inevitable. Uh, I, th- I think the ruling class is not ready to give up because there's no particular place for them to go. You know, it's one thing for the ruling classes or the banking classes or the elite classes to flee from, you know, 18th century or 19th century Europe to the New World. But I don't think they really want to learn Mandarin, so there's not a whole lot of places for them to go. So I think they're going to stand in the West, and I think we're going to see some restoration of economic freedoms, probably not as many social freedoms, but some economic freedoms, because they understand that the, uh, the, the tax livestock have become unproductive because the walls of regulation and taxation and control have closed in a little too tightly. You know, if you pack your cows too close together, they just, uh, they just get sick and die. And so the economy in the West, uh, and I, it is, to me, is as much Europe as it is North America, uh, a little bit more so than uh, in America than Canada. But there's just there's been too much regulation, too much control, too much expansion of state power, too many dependent parasites on state power 
those are going to have this is going to have to be a reform i don't think it's going to fall into fascism because the ruling classes know that that way lies their own impoverishment in the long run that they need to loosen the shackles on their productive classes in order to restore some of the economic growth that has died off over the past 20 or 30 years Mm, mm, mm. Where I'm, where I focus um, a, a lot of my time, and, and in fact, no, I don't focus too much on it. Come to think of it, but uh, the extermination uh, <laughs> aspect of uh, new world order and 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 uh, those sorts of things are, are always in the back of my mind. You know, whenever any kind of war, conflict, or any type of uh, event that gets hyped up in international media, I I, I automatically, and and this is probably just my assumption, uh, my of my young ignorance working here, but my assumption always is okay who's benefiting from this and how is it going to be used to further take our freedoms off us expand state power and eventually exterminate us orderly <laughs> you know? well i mean it's it's always a possibility but uh, as you may know i view the relationship between uh, the rulers and the citizens as the relationship between a farmer and the livestock and um we are sort of in the the unique position as livestock, that we only tend to be productive when we perceive that we are free and respected. And that, of course, is a, a counter to being livestock, but nonetheless, it's sort of the double thing that we require. Farmers don't want to kill off all their livestock. Uh, they want to find ways to make them more productive. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, what's you know one of the things that's happened over the past, well, a couple of centuries, really, but it's really been focused since the 1960s, uh, is that... Um, the politicians have bought votes by selling off the future of the productive classes. In other words, the, the productive uh, entrepreneurial classes. They've, they've bought votes by taking money from the productive classes and shoveling it down the gullets of people who become increasingly dependent. And I don't just mean the poor. Uh, I also mean the military-industrial complex, the, the, the corporate corporations who uh, suckle at the state teats and so on, uh, and the bankers, of course. And so governments take from the productive class and give to other people in return for votes because it's a lot easier to get money from the government than it is to go out and rob someone yourself. It's a lot safer, I guess, for people who aren't so much into the knife in people's ribs scenario. Yeah, and yeah. it reminds me of the plaque that uh, Ron Paul has on his desk, uh, no stealing, this government doesn't like competition. competition right. No <laughs> counterfeiting because that's our job, right? Uh, so, so I think that uh, what's happened is the dependent classes, you know, there's been a whole series of governments that have needed to to create more and more dependencies because that's how they buy their votes. And this is true of public sector unions and, as I said, the financial classes, the bankers, Wall Street, uh, military-industrial complex, the military itself, uh, the prison complex. and the I mean, you could go on and on. But there's just way, way, way too many anchors hanging off this boat. And there's way too many parasites in, uh, uh, in this body. And so there's going to need to be a shift away from this, um, quote, redistribution of money, which is just theft and bribery. There's going to need to be a shift away from it. I don't think that the rulers are so dumb as to think that if they just impose uh, martial law and fascism that uh, they're going to do anything other than completely crater the economy because they'll have to prevent people from leaving. And when people are prevented from leaving and martial law is declared, they tend to become economically very unproductive. You end up with a kind of late Mussolini slash um, Brezhnev style economy or a Chairman Mao economy where uh, people aren't producing anything because they're just too depressed. And so you have to keep the illusion of freedom alive. But at the same time, you have to, you know, draw back or, or cut back on the amount of money that's going to the dependent classes. It's a tricky, tricky business, but I bet your heads are working very hard in the corridors of power to figure out how to, uh, how to achieve this end. Like you said, or how to stop policy. people from, from finding any, any solutions. Go, Will. I mean, you, you touched on something there. I mean, a lot of this policy of, 
especially of welfare-based initiatives, uh, is just vote grabbing. You know, sure. it's just pragm- it's just pragmatic. We haven't you haven't got enough money. You can't afford the food. We're going to give you some food stamps. We're going to give you sixty dollars a week. We're going to, and that's you know, and there's all the promises. We're going to make free education. You know, who cares if we're brainwashing you? You know, uh, there's no. Where have people's principles gone? Why don't they think beyond the first dimension instead of just thinking money from government equals good? I vote for them. You know, like, right? You know, where where's the actual? Oh, nothing. Nothing's free in this world. The government can't create anything out of nothing. Well, the bankers can. Uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? They're not actually thinking about the downstream effects. If something seems too good to be true, it always is. Oh yeah, it's easy to win. It's easy to win a game if you cheat. <laughs> well, but the, the brilliant thing about uh, the brilliant thing about creating this dependent class is that they become the social police of everyone else, right? So uh, if you exactly. live next door to, if you live next door to some, I mean, not to pick on anyone in particular, there's these Wisconsin teachers at the moment whose uh, salaries are significantly higher with benefits than the average Wisconsin's. Um, so you, you live next door to someone who's a teacher who's, you know, uh, benefiting from all of this state uh, control and coercion. They get a couple of months off in the summer. They finish work at 2.30. They're in. And so what happens is if you say, look, uh, I want to be free. I want to be free of the violence of taxation. I want to be free of the destructiveness of state power. What happens is they get mad at you so that the, the government doesn't have to send anyone around to your house and, and threaten you with anything. All they have to do is create a dependent class that's big enough that the moment any of the productive classes starts talking about freedom, all the dependent classes start shouting them down. And it's a beautiful mechanism that, that keeps the, the slaves self-policing, right? The state is fundamentally a hor- horizontal mechanism of slave-on-slave aggression. Uh, it's very rare that it needs to be top-down. We all just turn on each other when anybody threatens the withdrawal of state benefits, exactly. and it's sad. Exactly. You see it if you go out on the street and you demonstrate for 9-11 truth or anything that's outside the box – who comes running to the defense of the establishment? Well, they don't need Henry Kissinger down there on the street because they've got every brainwashed little SOB out there who thinks they're part of the establishment, who thinks it works for them, who, who thinks that you know the Diet Coke is, is wholesome and good for them. And they, and they come running to the defense of a system they don't understand except for the trickle-fed, um, you know, what they get fed over the media portholes. It's really sad, isn't it? They just think they your own flesh and blood. Your own. I've got extended family who will defend a system they know nothing about to the point where they won't talk to me. They can't even give me the time of day being flesh and blood related. Right. It's no, I'm, I'm sorry to hear powerful, that. That's, a, but yeah. that's how powerful propaganda is, and it's not. It's not a sob story, but it happens to every anyone who steps outside the mark because that's how powerful the propaganda is worth more now than DNA. And uh, the sad thing, too, is that I think there's a lot of shame in being part of the dependent class. Uh, And along with a lot of shame comes a lot of fear, which is that you've kind of specialized as a sort of economic organism. You've kind of specialized into being this, fitting into this particular slot of dependency. And if if society changes, uh, I think it makes people feel very insecure that they're going to have to go out and compete in the free market with people who are you know, maybe more ambitious or maybe harder working and so on. So people, I think, feel a sense of shame and dependency. I think we all know what's going on deep down. But I think there's also a sense of great fear. Uh, and I think of somebody, you know, with, with all due sympathy, right? So some teacher who's 60, who's worked for, you know, 30 years or whatever uh, as a teacher, and, uh, you know, she, she's 
needs her retirement and she needs her health benefits and so on. And people come along and say, well, you know, this is all kind of coercive and it's all kind of immoral and, and so on. I mean, that's, that's a pretty terrifying thing. Uh, you, she can't rewind and start all over and she can't even fast forward and start all over. So uh, I really I have a lot of sympathy for the people who, uh, who have fallen into the sort of jaws of these kind of propaganda, have their brain chewed up and, and sort of spat out. And uh, are in the situation where they really do have a pretty grim battle on their hands. It's very, very hard to to face that uh, and, and to realize that you've been dependent, to realize that the system that's been supporting you and is going to support you has some pretty significant ethical problems that it's very root, notably the violation of the non-aggression principle. So, uh, you know, it's it's hard, hard, hard for people to admit that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And swinging back into the uh, Middle East situation, we have, um, well, Oh, how, how many countries now are on the verge of overthrowing or already have overthrown their government? You know, we're talking about a, a thing that's region-wide. We've got uh, Iran, Iraq, Jordan, Yemen, uh, Egypt, Tunisia, Libya. I mean, where, where's it going to stop? I mean, that's just counting off the top of my head. That's seven. Right. Well, um, I think uh, I think these things do tend to snowball, and there is this incredible, as you, I mean, the very reason that we're we're talking ourselves, there's this incredible spiderweb of communication that is going on. Uh, that that people in in you know, I mean, this guy sets himself on fire in Tunisia, and everybody in the Arab world knows about it within six hours, uh, and can you know maybe even see the video if there was video, or hear the reports, or see the news stories, and I mean, th- that is completely mind blowing. That you can see this this revolution spreading digitally and visually. It's truly astounding. Absolutely. The grand thing about being in the information age is that you give the average person the ability to amplify their emotions, their thoughts, and their experiences. You're listening to the Vinnie Eastwood Show with Will, a very special guest. It's Stefan Molyneux from Free Domain Radio, and we'll be right back after the break. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, the evil scumbags and elites and whatnot that think that this planet is their freaking ordained right to rule. There is nowhere to run and nowhere to hide because, well, they're surrounded on all sides by their enemies of free humanity. Our very special guest joining us for this hour is Stefan Molyneux, the host of Free Domain Radio. Stefan, welcome back. Thanks, Vinny. Great to be here. Yeah. Hey, well, what was the uh, thing that we wanted to get into now with them? Well, uh, just sort of like solutions and, and philosophically how we can actually turn this system around. Because what's happened is that we've got a society now that's been socially engineered into basically just not giving an F about the things that rule their lives. What if I was just absolutely mad? Well, I mean, it's uh, you could say that it's a rational calculation, right? So why, you know, I don't, I don't spend my spare time looking at, you know, mangled bodies in surgery manuals because, you know, there's not much time. I'm not going to be a surgeon. So I think a lot of people who don't feel like or believe that they have the ability to make a change are not going to look into 
what the problems are because then it's just like researching stuff you can't do anything about it's going to depress you it's going to alienate you it's going to make conversations with other people all kinds of awkward because they're going to bring up you know how well we should raise corporate taxes to do this and we should lower spending over here and we and of course if you disagree with the whole system those conversations can be a little bit awkward so if you say to people well you should learn about this stuff you should learn philosophy and you should learn freedom and you should learn economics and part of them are say so that i can feel excluded so that I can feel awkward so that I can have uh, really 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 explosive conversations with people in order to achieve what and I think that's the great gap that yeah. the freedom movement has yet to close which is to give yeah. people a compelling reason for learning about stuff that, which can be brain tortuous and make you feel a whole uh, cavalcade of, of despair and hopelessness and all other kinds of things Exactly. That's why I, mean, I like it, it activists comes... who 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 um, basically adopt very specific fields of research, you know, so that they can understand one element. And uh, my goal is really to just sort of interview all the people who are specialists in all the elements, so that I can be given at least a general overview, so that I can personally, for myself, just figure out what the hell is going on here and what to do about it. Well, my goal is to my goal is to defeat these guys, and so. We don't have to do this show anymore, to be honest, uh, because <laughs> we're in it to get out, right? <laughs> well, well, I mean, we, it's more than the show that we need to. The show isn't our predicament, you know. The, the total enslavement is, and that's what I think is missing. I think we need a reference plane, a backbone, a skeleton to our resistance from which we're working from. Otherwise, we're just you know, getting paddled off at every argument, at every level, we're getting pushed to the side with pragmatic debates. Oh, we needed to invade Iraq because we've got this Islamic hatred towards the West and they, they're jealous of our way of life. They're jealous of our slavery. They oh. want <laughs> they want interest. Yeah, we, we kill we kill millions of them uh, by oh, denying them food I mean. and medical care and then we're shocked that they might be at all upset with us. I mean, but unless we have a real reference plane that everyone can agree on, then we yeah. cannot defeat all their little pompous arguments that we know ahead of time they're going to say. Then we know they're going to call us conspiracy theorists. We know they're going to say this isn't the time for debate and all the rest. You're of an them. extremist. Yeah, like you know, because that's a helpful word, right? The, the other day, and then and then you know, the views talking about Charlie Sheen, and you can't mention anything about the geopolitical nature of what's going on, what America's doing right now, because that's you know, that's outside of the the, the frames of the debate, as we've, we've as we've you know pictured it. Mm. Yeah, well, you know, I, really I was wondering, the is the debate is the debate actually important anymore? I think the frame of the debate it seems to be more important than the topic of the debate itself. You know, I think that debate should be able to have free flow and be able to go into any direction that that is in any way relevant. You know, because some people they they try to separate things, and and this is this is the great part about compartmentalized society where everybody specialized in one small area and can't do f all else. You know, they just they just they just block themselves off from learning things because they just don't see the relevance or they don't want to see it more operatively. Well, I've always felt that uh, – I shouldn't say I've always felt. I've really come to the conclusion over the last few years, gentlemen, that the fact that you can't have these conversations with people is exactly why we don't need a government. Because these social rules are spontaneously created. There's no central directive, right? Like your, your socialist aunt Ellie doesn't get a little directive which says, okay, if this topic comes up, you need to block with this. And if this topic comes up, you need to say this. And don't, don't even talk about They're this topic. Yeah. 
well, these the because these these rules, these these ostracisms, these tensions, these social problems, these attacks, they all arise spontaneously. In other words, the most fundamental social rules of interaction are arising spontaneously, are enforced without any central coordination or planning. And that is a fantastic argument as to how social rules can be enforced without a government. Just try to talk to people outside the box of propaganda and you get short circuits, you get aggression, you get pretend confusion, you get all of these things which we've all experienced a million times. But that's exactly why we don't need a government because all of these social rules will be enforced without central planning, without central coercion, without all of these these mechanisms which are so destructive, uh, like like uh, jails and and uh, and and wars and and uh, imprisonments and so on. I think it's a really, it, it, although it can be really frustrating to work within this really foggy maze of social convention, the fact that it's so powerful is exactly the argument that should help propel us forward, which is to say, hey, you know how you don't want to talk about this or, you know, I can predict exactly what you're going to say. When I bring up taxation is forced, you're going to tell me it's a social contract. If I say it's a social contract, then it should be voluntary. You say, no, it has to be enforced because if it wasn't enforced, no one would obey it. So then it can't be a social contract because nobody wants to obey it and it, therefore it's forced. I know we're going to go round and round like this. It's completely predictable. But that's exactly why we don't need a government because people will spontaneously organize themselves to, uh, to protect the status quo, to protect their self-interest. All we have to do is teach them that their self-interest is different than the, what their masters tell us, and society will self-organize and enforce itself without the need for centrally coercive uh, monopolies of power. Yeah, yeah, decentralizing government, I think, is one of the things that I really, really want to advocate here is because of the fact that every single centrally planned economy has eventually either deprived all its people of its wealth or assets or destroyed all of their rights. You know, it doesn't work any other, it doesn't work any other way if you look at history. And uh, my, my assumption is that at the moment, our politicians, for some reason, um, they are so brainwashed and they are so propagandized. So I, I, I would I would hasten to guess that even very few of our of our current politicians know anything about politics, geopolitics, or uh, the new world order, or, or any of these aspects that would actually influence their political decisions. They don't know, and it's because of the fact that we don't debate all of these things. It's because of the fact that they operate within set guidelines and paradigms, and it's because of the fact that they can't talk about truth. No, they can't. And if you imagine the most, the most staggeringly narcissistic vanity that it must take for a politician to say, I am competent to talk about how education should work in a country of 300 million people or 15 million or, or 5 million people. I mean, just imagine, imagine how insane you would have to be at the very, very deepest level, so insane that you look perfectly normal, <laughs> how insane you'd have to be to say, I know how to create jobs in a complex, technological, modern economy that is embedded in, in globalization. In other words, I know how to create jobs. I saw this guy in the Daily Show the other day uh, who was one of Barack uh, Obama's economic, top economic advisors, and he was like, you know, we've created a million jobs over the fact. No, you haven't. You haven't done it. You've just, I mean, you've borrowed, you've, you've sold off the kids to, to whoever, but you haven't created a single job because if you were creating a single job, you'd be uh, too busy actually working for a living rather than writing all these policy statements. But that's the thing that's amazing. It, it, you know, philosophy really is, I think, fundamentally designed to teach you humility. I don't know how the poor should be saved. I don't know how everyone should be educated. I don't know how, how national defense should be provided. I don't know 
how roads should be built. Uh, I do believe that if we stop pointing guns at everyone all the time, amazing and wonderful solutions will come out of the, the, the complex ecosystem of human creativity. But I don't know. This is anarchism or voluntarism or statelessness or whatever you want to call it is simply an admission of rational ignorance. I don't know how you should live. I don't know what your wife should do with her life. I don't know exactly how your children should be educated. I, I, I don't like even one family I can't tell how to live. But the idea that you can pass a law to, to tell 300 million people how their health care should be provided, I mean, that is so mad that you know these people have never gone through this sort of humil- humility of, of uh, rational self-limitation or rational self-examination. Exactly. I mean, instead of, instead of saying, I don't know, and being honest and open about it, they say instead another three words, I don't care. <laughs> what do you mean? I mean, what, what, what happens is these people don't want to think of they don't want to go and read read 25 books and, and and study you know social policy or or just anything or just even just think for themselves or sit in a dark room at night and go oh you know how you know what makes sense here how do i want to live my life how does my neighbor want to live my life what what sort of intent do most people have uh what what are what are the threats to our liberty instead of thinking these things people just go well i'm going to trust barack obama he looks like a nice man he's smart he came out of harvard law he got his first job with Zbigny Brzezinski or whatever. I mean, he's a good guy. Um, and so they put, they offer up their trust, and and, and that way these people get all this power. And then, and then the same zombies say to me every day, and they say to you, Stefan, they say, you can't do anything about it. It's too big. You're just a drop in the water. Uh, quit while you're ahead. Stop hating the government. Don't blame them for your problems. And well, sorry, let me interrupt you for just a sec. I, 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 would, I would be a little bit more precise. They don't give up their power to Barack Obama. I mean, it's no reason to pick on him rather than anyone else, but his name came up. Uh, because if, if they wanted to give up their power to Barack Obama, he wouldn't even need to run for office, right? He would just need to create a website uh, where he would tell people what to do every day, and they'd just go and subscribe, and he'd say, okay, well, I need to give my money here, and I need to, need to go obey these rules, and so I'll just go and do that. What yeah, happens I want is to the, be power, is taken, yeah, the power is taken from them. Yeah, the power is taken from them. Sorry, the power is taken from them, and then they justify it by saying, well, he seems like a nice, smart guy, so I guess it's okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. I mean, I, I, miss, I labeled it. I, I pinned it on Barack. What, what I should say is it's not the figurehead. It's the establishment that they whore themselves out to for cheap rates, uh, comparative to the national debt anyway. And, you know, it's, what it does is it alleviates people of their own responsibilities for themselves. So it's not that most people are bad. It's just that... As as these catch nets have have been developed, and you know we have all this entertainment industry, and then we're working more and more slavishly because our dollar's been devalued. People don't have the time or energy or motivation or inclination to really want to govern themselves, and so these guys are given the opportunity to step in because government has no power on paper. Government is is a fictional entity. The only way they get power is by people conceding their own, and that's the sad thing. Yeah, yeah, realize absolutely. your personal power. If you if you think about the might of the biggest armies in the world, the the U.S. military today, you think of their power, and you think of you think of all of what they have, and you just look at the architecture of government. All that power is stolen power. That's all the initiative and all the drive and the intellect that's stolen from people and disproportionately placed in few hands to be a to be a baton tool of the central bankers who go unseen. I, yeah, I certainly I think it's very true that you you don't uh, you don't ever see the guys behind the curtain. I mean, Barack Obama doesn't wield the power. Uh, it's the people who print the money and the people who control the currency, in my view, who uh, who have the real power. 
It's the less obvious ones, you know, I mean, like, and they're, and they're so detached from reality that, I, you know, it wouldn't surprise me, but of course it would shock me um, if, say, a congressman or whatever kidnapped 100,000 children and then forced them into prostitution and said, look at all the jobs that I've created. <laughs> um, so as a solution, that's what you would do. You would, you would say, we're not going to serve central banks anymore and we're going to, what, nationalize our banks and cancel the debt? Is that the first step you would take? Well, the first step that I would take is um, uh, simply allow for a free market in currency. I mean, this is how it used to work in the United States and in other countries. Uh, because, of course, it, it used to be gold and silver back in the day. And uh, fiat currency was simply created as a representation of gold and silver. It was never supposed to have any value in and of itself. It was certainly never supposed to have any value outside of its relationship to gold and silver. And the free market in general tends to pick, or at least used to when it was free, tended to pick gold and silver because, you know, it had good ratios. It was hard to find. You could split it up without destroying its value, unlike something like a diamond or whatever. And so uh, I would simply say... And even then they manipulated the value. The, uh, well, uh, there were some changes in the value because, for instance, uh, when Spain discovered the New World, they imported all of this gold, which messed up their economy and gave them 400 years of economic decline because of massive inflation. And so there, there, there are problems with gold and silver as a form of currency. I think that uh, electronic currency would be much better. But currency as a whole needs to be very closely and rationally tied to the overall growth of the economy. And uh, anybody who runs a private currency system that could provide stability and predictability in that currency without deflation, without wild boom and bust swings, would very quickly rise to prominence in the, uh, in the economy. So the very first thing that I would do, of course, cancel all the debt. The debt is completely and totally imaginable. But privatize oh, money. Yeah. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the Vinnie Eastwood Show with Will on AmericanFreedomRadio.com and incidentally, the Vinnie Eastwood Show.com. Proudly brought to you in collaboration with GorillaMedia.co.nz. Our very special guest, Stefan Molyneux, host of Free Domain Radio, joins us here for the final segment of the fastest two hours in talk radio now one thing i'd like to um get your take on is we, we were discussing over the break the uh, the concept of freedom or uh constitutionality and whether or not it can even be maintained because uh in my opinion uh and we take the example of uh, hugo chavez for example uh when he was elected he made a point of going around and teaching the people of venezuela about their rights and their constitution and yada 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 making sure that they all knew it and then after the cia ousted him in a coup, uh, two million people took to the streets, overthrew the coup leaders, and then brought Chavez back. Now that that seems as a um, as a shining example of what happens when you educate people about um, what their rights are and how important it is to defend them. And this has been eroded um, by a number of different mechanisms in the United States, both chemically, politically, and monetarily, um, to basically take away people's knowledge of their rights and and thus take away the rights themselves what's your take on that stefan well i um i i'm annoyingly philosophical uh, in this in these uh, areas so i don't like i don't like to look at you know what may work what could have worked what has worked here or what has worked there because what i like to do is say okay well look we need to have some way the society needs to be organized i think that organization is a pretty good thing. I mean, you need, you, you, need, you need stuff to work in society, and I think that's, that's a good thing to aim for. 
And so we're either going to try and patch stuff together based on what we kind of like or what might have worked here or could have worked there. Or what we're going to do is we're going to clear the table and clear the table. We're going to say, okay, what's good and what's evil? What's right, morally right, and what's morally wrong? And I think that we all agree that theft is wrong, that assault is wrong, that murder is wrong, that rape is wrong. Okay, which straight all away here the we get into... Straight away, yeah, here but we the, get into a moral, um, a system of morality. The zeitgeist crowd would argue there is no inherent morality; it's all conditioning. <laughs> so, right. what do we do with those people? I mean, there's a lot of people. Well, not see, the zeitgeist, but, but here's the thing. Of, I mean, I, I've got a whole, I've got a whole book on ethics, uh, which is available for free on my website, where I sort of try and make this case. So I won't make the whole case here. But if we accept that the non-aggression principle, and I've talked to the zeitgeist people, I had a debate with them recently, um, and they agree that the non-initiation of force is a moral principle, that they would not initiate force to to get their system going, in which case we're all brothers experimenting in the social paradise called everyone. That's great. But if we accept that the non-initiation of force is a universal value, then uh, simply by definition, you simply can't have a government because a government is... A, a monopoly, a group with a monopoly to initiate, a monopoly power to initiate force in a geographical area. So if you're going to say that the non-initiation of force is a moral good, then you, you can't have a government. However tempting and however comfortable, and I understand how comfortable it is, and it's really weird to think of this as like thinking, hey, let's have a, a, a farm with no gravity. It's, it seems weird to think of a, a society without government, but that's okay. Oh, we can't, we, okay, okay, I'll just so, so, uh, so right but now if, we have total if, dependence. Right now we have total dependence, a total nanny state. You go your method here. I'm just posturing an argument here. Total yep. independence. I'm saying people can't go from A to Z. I'm saying people go from A to maybe X. And we have a limited government where they have sole responsibilities, but their responsibilities have to and are held to the public good by a measure of moral good. And so it's not force. It's not. It's not force for their own um, benefit. It's it's an act of good and righteous government within the benefit of the people. Well, but look, here's if you if you want to talk about practical consequences, here's what I would argue: that there's nothing more dangerous to the world than a small government, because a small government has a very efficient economy. And so if you look at uh, England, why did it become a world power? Why did it ever have an empire? It had an empire because it was the first country to institute free trade and the protection of property rights uh, by and large in general for, for most of the classes. And so because of that, it, it became the world trade center uh, of, of the world. Uh, Spain had a similar experiment in free trade, which gave them. So when you have a small government, the small government uh, has a very productive economy. The very productive economy creates a huge influx of taxes or potential taxation, which allows the government to grow and grow and grow. So if you look at the American government, we were talking in the break, you said it, it worked pretty well for 80 years. Well, anarchism worked in Ireland for almost a thousand years, but nonetheless, the government that starts off the smallest always ends up the largest because the smallest governments have the most productive economies, which we creates works, huge wealth, so, which they when feed. We say, when we say Ireland's model worked, to what ends? I mean, not being mean here. I mean, I've ancestry in Ireland, but mean, I mean, seriously, to what ends? Like, uh, I mean, I, I, it, that once again, that comes down to cultural values. There's a lot of grey areas in right and wrong. And then it comes down to the the physical on the ground application and the constituents of now. Right now we have, for for better or worse, largely cosmopolitan, multicultural um, nations where there are a lot of cultural boundaries clashing or distancing themselves from one another. It then 
favours your model of not having a centralised government because that would have to have one-size-fits-all policy across all these cultural realms. Uh, but still, you're going to have tribal factions competing and and then and, and some rising to prominence over over others. I mean, we're always going to have these boundaries form in society. We're always going to have a hierarchical system form, aren't we? Well, I would argue that um, where you see the most tribal conflict is where you see people attempting to gain control of the state, right? So we think of the wars, uh, the civil wars in Africa. These are wars because people want to get a hold of the government. And one of the reasons they want to get a hold of the government is to get foreign aid and other kinds of benefits. You you, you kind of broke up there a bit, Stefan. You'll have to repeat that. Sure, sorry. So look at uh, in Africa, you see all of these tribes that are competing and, and warring with each other. And what are they warring over? They're warring over to get control of the government. Right, so that's what they're willing to invest blood and they money into. They want power because there's already a government, right? So they, why did the Nazis invade uh, uh, France in May of 1940? They invaded France to take over the government, to take over you the can, tax base. You can get rid of an official government, but you're always going to have people who want power, and whether you call it a government or a gang, these uh, these groups are always going to resist. My argument is, if you have a if you have a good government, a good group of people, then they can act in the public good and protect the public from, you know, wannabe gangsters forming and ruling over people. My thoughts well, is that you just need to inform the public so that they know how to defend themselves because there's nothing more dangerous than somebody with independent thinking that won't do what you tell them to do. I'd like to thank you, Stefan, for coming on the show with us today. Um, it's been a real pleasure, mate. Thank you so much. It was a great conversation. Hey, I really appreciate you, the invitation. We've got to have you back, Stefan. Thanks. Take care, man. Have a great night. For real. You can check him out on Free, to, free Domain Radio. Just Google that and you will find it. You're listening to The Vinnie Eastwood Show. Thank you very much for doing that. And we'll be back tomorrow. Tomorrow.